on to chapter number 18 and verse number 28. The Bible says, For the hell will light my candle, the Lord my God will enlighten my darkness. Let's read it one more time together if you can. Can you read it out loud with me? For thou wilt light my candle, the Lord my God will enlighten my darkness. Today I'm going to preach on flames. Thank you to be seated in the presence of the Lord. Flames. The psalmist David historically here was reminiscing on a season in his life, uh, both before and during his kingship where he had faced some hard times. Specifically, some of those things that he may have been reminiscing on were the times when King Saul was after his life. Alright, so Psalm 118, 28, the psalmist is reflecting and uh, if you'll remember, one time, at one point he was on the run, dwelt in caves, while King Saul was after him. There was jealousy. He saw that God's hand was on David. He saw that David was next in line to be king, and King Saul was not playing the nice, <coughs> to say the least. In fact, King Saul went a little bit crazy. If you remember, sometimes he would lure David in, to play music, and he was so anointed with his gift of music that all he had to do play the harp. And God's anointing was so on his playing of the harp that the demons would be driven away from King Saul. They couldn't even handle just the playing of the instrument. Mentions no makes no mention of lyric or 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 words being sang or spoken. Just playing. You know, God is the one who created. They somehow or another hooked up to the heart of God when he played that instrument. Well, other times, King Saul would be throwing daggers at David trying to kill him. He was what some today might call schizophrenic or, or maybe bipolar. I don't know. He was up one day down in that unpredictable, unstable as water. But that's what happens when God given authority. Uh, subverts the leadership of God in their lives. Uh, things start when you start uh, introducing disorder into your life by being disobedient to the one who has anointed you. Everything starts going haywire. That's not my message, but this is the environment that David is reflecting upon, and and he says, "For thou wilt light my candle." He's speaking from experience. He was in a dark place. But the Lord, based upon his experience with God, Lord, you did it for me before. You'll do it for me again. You will light my candle. You will enlighten my darkness. How many of you need God to turn the light on in some areas in your life? Say amen this morning. I'm talking about flames. I'm talking about flames. Another scripture I want you to consider is Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 27 where the Bible says, that the spirit of man is the candle of the Lord. The spirit of man is the candle of the Lord. Searching all the inward parts of the belly. This is a, a King James word, and it's what it's dealing with is the inner parts. Your inside man. 
You might say your soul, your spirit, that that was in you. You know, your thoughts, your intentions, your motives, all all that stuff. It says that the spirit of man is the candle of the Lord. That's why when a man is lost and his spirit is disconnected from God spiritually, he's dead. He has no light from God. That's why lost people walk in darkness because their spirit is dead until it is resurrected by saving grace. And then once you get saved by the grace of God, your spirit is reborn. You are reconnected to your creator. And now that spirit is connected to the God of heaven who can enlighten you, can inform you, can educate you, can give you what you need to know when you need to know it so you don't live in utter darkness. Somebody say amen. amen. So the spirit of man is the candle of the Lord. That was the original design intent for you to live in connection with your creator God and for him to work with you, for you, and through you the mighty works of God. You were not meant to live in a vacuum. You were not meant to do it your way. Amen. Uh, 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 the Christianity that cannot live by the slogan of Burger King, have it your way. No. You do it God's way. You don't do it any way at all. Can I get an amen? amen. Right? God created you for a reason. Now, in this mixed congregation, we have several uh, young people. We have middle-aged people. We have elderly. It's a good mixed congregation. But I especially want to talk to anyone under the sound of my voice who's still looking for why you are here. In fact, theologians will tell you that the, big, the three big questions of life is this. Who am I? Why am I here? And where am I going? Would you agree with that? Yes. Those are the questions that theologians argue and debate about. And many different religions have... Many different answers, but my friend, let me remind you, you have the one creator, and if you want to know why you are here, you just need to seek your creator. Can I get an amen? All right, and so did you know that the Bible actually answers all of these questions very simply and very easily? I'm headed somewhere, so stick with me. For example, the question, who am I, is answered in the book of Psalms, chapter 139 and verses 13 and 14 where it says for thou hast possessed my reins. There's another word talking about your inner being. Thou hast covered me. This is the psalmist talking to his creator God in prayer. He said thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise thee for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works and that my soul knoweth right well. The psalmist answered first the question, who am I? Let me answer with the Bible. According to the word of God, you can declare emphatically, and you can say as the psalmist, this my soul knoweth right well, that I am God's masterpiece made for his purpose. Who are you? You are a creation created by your creator God for a specific purpose. That is an essential purpose part that you need to understand. Why do you think communism and all of these uh, uh, governmental regimes, that, that these totalitarian uh, governments of men, why do you think they always try to disconnect you from any notion of a creator in your life? 
It is because they want you to think of them as your ultimate authority. They don't want you to have an inner compass that tells you right from wrong because as soon as you get the idea that you answer to a higher call, you may be in direct rebellion to a regime that does not want you to succeed or to prosper. Can I get an amen? That's why communism is primarily atheistic in their views. Is because It's not really because they believe there's no God. They just don't want you to believe there's a God because they want ultimate control. And Satan is always out for the mind control and heart control. If he can get this young generation to believe that they can call their own destiny, that they can do whatever they want to do, and they don't have to have God. In fact, God don't even exist. Well, the devil's well on his way to deceiving the masses and leading them straight into the pits of hell while keeping them chained all the way. You need to know that you were created by a creator with you in mind that you're not happenstance. You're not an accident. You're not a coincidence. You're not just the byproduct of a night gone wrong. Are you hearing what I'm saying? If you are breathing, then God gave you the gift of life and it is not an accident what the devil may have meant for evil. Even if it was not the most ideal of circumstances. Maybe your mama and your daddy were not even married. Maybe you were born out of wedlock. Maybe you were the byproduct of a rape and you have always lived under the shadow that there, has to, there can't be any order or meaning or purpose. But let me remind you that if you're breathing, God allowed it for a reason. And He can take what the devil meant for evil and spin it around for His good, for your good, and for His glory. Amen? But you need to know that you are God's masterpiece. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. Because the devil and society will devalue you. Make you feel worthless. Make you, make you tie your worth to how good you perform for somebody else. I'm glad that God saw my worth before I ever performed anything for Him. You know, God don't love you based on your performance. He loves you based upon what Jesus already did. He doesn't, he doesn't redeem the redeemable. He doesn't redeem those. He says, well, those are worth the saving, but those are not. No. God looks at all of humanity and says, every one of them, I'll save them all if they'll just take me. That's That's how valuable you are to God because He knows what He can do with you. He knows what He created you for. And you you do yourself a service by getting plugged into a good Bible believing, Bible preaching, Bible practice in church that actually believes in Creator God and leads you to Him through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. There is no other religion under heaven that has this kind of an answer. Every other founder of every other major religion is dead in the grave. Jesus is the only one with infallible proofs that got up three days later all by Himself. And He lives and he ever lives to make intercession. He's praying for you right now from the throne room of heaven. Good night. He's very much alive and well. And you are here because he created you. So who am I? I am God's masterpiece made for his purpose. Now why am I here? 
Well, the book of Ephesians chapter 2 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So his purpose is for you to get connected with him through Jesus and then to allow him through you to exhibit good works that point other people to him. Amen. Did you know that your good works don't get you to heaven? But your good works can point others to heaven. Your good works can point others to Jesus. We don't do good works as an achievement effort to try to earn salvation. We do good works because we're already saved and now we're our new creatures. We are, uh, old things have passed away, all things have become new. Now I have Jesus living in me and the Jesus living in me has got to get out. Somebody as big as God living on the inside, somebody as little as you can't help but stick out somewhere. Can I get an amen right there? He's going he's to want to show his love and his character. And he's going to want to do it through you. That's why he created you. And, and away with this notion that uh, uh, this popular idea that, uh, well, that church, is that, that's, that, that ain't for everybody. In fact, that ain't for most. I know what the Bible says. The Bible says few that be that find it. But that ain't because it wasn't God's will. That's not because it was God's will for it to be that way. You need to understand it's God's will for every one of you to sign up for Jesus and every one of you to live for Him. It's not His will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. In fact, I think we have far few, far less preachers than we should, far less missionaries than we should. Amen. Why is it such an odd thing for a young person to surrender to the mission field today? It's not because God's not calling. It's because people are listening to the wrong voices. And they're placing their value in the wrong places. They're, they're identifying with the wrong places. Why am I here? I'm here to glorify God. He said, I know the thoughts I think towards you. Say, the Lord thoughts of peace and not of evil. To give you an expected end. In other words, God has a plan. For your life. And you best be seeking after. Remember the scripture we read. The spirit of man is the candle of the Lord. Searching all the inward parts of the belly. Why does man? Why is man born searching? That's because God wants you to search until you find. Right. Amen. Why do men seek for hope at the bottle, a bottom of a bottle and discover that it's empty? And they look for hope and hope only to find out that after the high comes the low again. And they look for hope in, in, in extramarital affairs and all the sin of society only to find out that they're still empty and hopeless and helpless. Why do men go on endless searches for peace and joy and happiness never to find it unless and until they receive Jesus Christ as the Savior and then all of a sudden their sins are washed away all of a sudden they're filled with hope and purpose and peace. Amen. I remember when I got saved, you know what? Uh, as an 11 year old boy, I could have I could have went the wrong way very easily. I went to uh, a public high school and most of my public high school friends and colleagues were not in church. They were not believers. They were not Christians. And uh, I was exposed to a lot of junk. Y'all know how it is. 
I can't imagine how much worse it is now than it was in, 19, in the 90s. Uh, amen. Can't imagine. Now with smartphones and pornography at your fingertips and all the junk the kids have to put up with and wade through nowadays, it's a lot worse now than it ever was. Uh-huh. But let me tell you something. If you'll get hooked up to Jesus, he'll guide you through all those landmines of life and keep you pure and spotless from the world and fill you full of purpose and happiness. And you'll discover that nothing will satisfy you like a relationship with your creator. Amen. There's a big hole in your heart shaped like Jesus, and only Jesus can fill it. Only Jesus. The mistakes some make is they're going to say they're going to try to prove me wrong. I'll show that preacher, I'll live it up and I'll have a good time and he's wrong about me. Maybe other people can't find happiness, but I can. You won't find happiness in anything but Jesus because he didn't create you to be fulfilled without him. Why? Let me ask you a question. Why would God create you to be fulfilled without him when he's the best that he's to offer? It would be cruel of God to create you to be fulfilled without him. Knowing that he's the best thing he can offer you. Why would he give you any less than the best? See how the devil twists your mind and makes you think the world has something better to offer than God? It is nothing but a flat-faced lie. Can I get an amen this morning? Let me tell you something. Jesus is the best thing going ever, always has been, always will be. And that's the reason he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. He's not being rude or cruel. He's actually being very loving by insisting upon the fact that if you want any hope, you need to hook up with the only one that has all the answers. Why would he leave you in your darkness? The world would have you think that we're crazy. We've lost our mind and we're playing mind games and we're manipulating your mind and we're brainwashing you. They call us a cult. They call us all kinds of things. No, the only cult they have is they've been done drink the Kool-Aid of the devil letting the devil lead them away from Jesus. Amen. So listen, who am I? I'm God's masterpiece. Why am I here? I'm here to serve God. Where am I going? Well, John, John chapter 14 answers that question. Jesus said, I go in my Father's house with many mansions or many dwelling places. If, 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 let me help you with why the King James translators use that word mansion. Let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question because I know there's debate about whether or not that was an accurate translation. A dwelling place. In my father's house, Jesus talking about God the Father's dwelling uh, house. If you were translating the Bible into English, and you were in England, and you thought about what is the best word that can describe the biggest house that man can relate to, what word would you use? Palace. Palace or a mansion. That's why the translators use that. Because they're speaking God's size. They're not talking just average and ordinary. You see what I'm saying? In my Father's house are many mansions or dwelling places. There's room for everybody. Can I get an amen? amen. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. God's got a spot just with your name on it. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. But let me tell you something. This scripture speaks more to entering into that place through a relationship with Jesus Christ than it does entering into the portals of glory because you'll not get to the portals of glory until you are in that place with Christ. 
This is better than heaven. This is walking with God, Emmanuel, in your heart. You know, we celebrate the fact that Jesus came 2,000 years ago as a baby. But I, this Christmas, choose to celebrate that He's still coming with us into the hearts of men through the person of the Holy Spirit every single day of the year. Amen. That He's still with us. I know He might have physically went to His Father, but through the Holy Spirit, He said, He said, I will come again to you. I will not leave you comfortless. And so why are we here? We're here to serve Him. Where are we going? We're going to that place. To dwell with the Father and with the Son. And you don't have to wait until you get to heaven to get there. Here's why. Because he said he has made us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Did you know if you're born again, you're already in that place? You're with the Father and you're with the Son in the heavenlies, spiritually speaking. There is an earthly domain. There is a spiritual domain. And when you get saved and born again because your spirit reconnects with God, you are now sitting at the council seat of the divine trinity of God. And anytime you need access, you can just raise your voice and he'll hear you. Let us therefore come boldly before the throne of grace. God's goal is for you to live in the presence of God. Where are you going? Well, you're meant to live in his presence. I love what Charles uh, Stanley defined as success. He said success is living in the presence of God. Amen. When you're living in the presence of someone who has it all, seen it all, knows it all, amen, holds it all, does it all, what better place can you be? That's success right there. Success is not in you knowing it all, but in you having connections to the one who does Amen. And who cares? And not only is willing, not, not only is able to help you, but is willing, more than willing, and made every way possible to help you. Amen. I'm laying a good foundation for this sermon. I hope you're paying attention. So we've answered the three questions. Why am I here? Who am I? And where am I going? Now I want to give you some examples, some modern history examples of names that you'll most likely recognize of people who surrendered to God in their lives and God used in powerful ways. But I, what I want you to pay particular attention to is not the end story, not how great an impact they made, so much as how small their beginnings were. Because if everybody thinks that the big stuff is for somebody else, everybody thinks that some preacher so-and-so He's the one. Or, or they're the one that God can use. I'll, God will never use me like that. And they underestimate the flame of God in their heart. I'm looking at young men and young ladies in this building today. You have no clue what's available to you until you seek God in prayer and listen for his voice. But you can have a completely different future than the one you have planned for yourself or thought for yourself because God created you for so much more. And I want you to think of yourself as a prime candidate, not a last pick. I remember in uh, elementary school in particular, when we would line up for PE class, I was always the last one to get picked on the teams because I was the least likely to be helpful in scoring points. I'm just not athletic. 
It is what it is. But I found my gift and I found my calling. It's in preaching and teaching the Word of God. And that's where I want to make it count for the Lord. Are you hearing what I'm saying? But I tell you, no matter what your skill set is, God is not looking at you as a last resort. God can use your gift set and your talents and your strengths in a magnificent way. Just make yourself available. I think, for example, and I'm going to do some reading. Is that all right this morning? Y'all all right with that? Think, for example, who, who knows who Billy Graham is? <laughs> Crazy question, right? In Billy Graham's private moment of surrender, he was in a revival meeting. His turning point came during a series of revival meetings led by evangelist Mordecai Ham. Nobody ever heard of him, hardly. Until Billy Graham got heard of. And then he told the story. Everybody wants to be Billy Graham, but nobody understands the significance of Mordecai Ham. If Mordecai Ham had not been obedient, Billy Graham may have never gotten saved. And he may not have had the impact. Right. Amen. This was in 1934. Graham, then as a teenager, are you listening, young people? Was moved by Ham's preaching and made a personal commitment to Christ. This experience set him on the path to becoming one of the most influential Christian evangelists of the 20th century. Billy Graham is, a is estimated to have preached the gospel to more people in live audiences than anyone else in history. Nearly 215 million people in more than 185 countries and territories. Through his radio and television broadcast books and the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, his message reached hundreds of millions more. His influence extends beyond these numbers through his counseling of world leaders, his role in the rise of evangelicalism, and his encouragement of a new generation of evangelists. All that because a young teenager heard the voice of God and caught flame. He said, I want to be a flame for Jesus. And he surrendered to that. Now, I don't, I'm not saying that everybody can be a Billy Graham, but everybody can be a Mordecai. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Everybody can... Be, make a difference in one person's life and you never know how far reaching that one difference will make. I thought about uh, how many of you ever heard of the, the missionaries Jim and Elizabeth Elliot? Y'all remember the story they surrendered to the mission field they went to reach the un, reach, uh, unreached tribes uh, and uh, those, those tribal Indians actually martyred them. The husbands that is. I'm, I'm fast forward there's a lot to cover. Uh, the husbands were martyred. The wives got a burden and went back and led them on to the Lord. They forgave them. And now they got a great ministry still going on today. Right. Because a young couple surrendered wholly and entirely to Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. Help me remember the quote that Elizabeth, I mean, uh, Jim Elliott's famous quote. I want to try to get this right. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep. gives up what he cannot keep the game what he cannot lose. Mm. Did he not live that out? And, and let me read you this. Uh, I'm trying to inspire our young people this morning to set your sights higher. 
Amen. I'm going to have an altar call in a few minutes, and I'm going to ask God, the Holy Spirit, to speak to some hearts, to begin to search the will of God for your life. And ask God, is it possible that you could set me on fire for you? Is it possible that I could be the next Jim or Elizabeth Elliott or the next Billy Graham or the next Mordecai or the next whoever that you can use in a special way? I want you to think higher than what this world is offering you because all they offer you is, is going to it's, it's going to be it's going to shortchange you. Amen. And Elizabeth and Jim Elliott's uh, spiritual journey, his journey, uh, his decision to become a missionary was solidified during his time at Wheaton College. He was deeply influenced by the stories of missionaries he read about and felt a strong calling to spread the gospel. Then his wife. Uh, was influenced by a missionary background. Elizabeth, having been raised in a family deeply involved in missionary work, felt an early call to missions. Her commitment to missionary service was further cemented through her education at Wheaton College where she met Jim, her husband. And although their time in Ecuador was cut short by Jim's martyrdom, their story inspired thousands to consider and commit to missions. Yes. Yes. Wow. Who would have thought the devil wanted to get rid of Jim Elliott? But when he did, he, uh, a thousand more rose up in his place. Good night. At least a thousand. And their story continues to inspire people to surrender to missions even to this day. Elizabeth's book, Speaking Engagements, and continued missionary work after Jim's death extended their influence. Her writings have been foundational for Many in understanding sacrifice, commitment, and faith. And the ripple effect is that the martyrdom of Jim and his colleagues and Elizabeth's response had a profound impact on Christian missions, inspiring many to commit their lives to missionary work. I'm talking about being flames for Jesus. You were meant to light a fire for God. That flame in you that's not satisfied with anything but a genuine and pure walk with God. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Say amen. Here's one that the Southern Baptists ought to readily recognize. One Miss Annie Armstrong. You say, why are you talking about modern history instead of biblical characters? Let me ask you a question. How many of you would like to know that God is as much alive today in our time as he was back in Bible days? Raise your hand. Amen. Amen. That's why I'm doing this. I want you to know that the Bible is not so far removed from you. That's right. Amen. That God's still working. He's still doing great things through people who surrender to him, even today. Uh, Annie Armstrong, though less is known about a specific pivotal moment, she was deeply moved and involved in church activities from a young age. Her commitment to Christian service was evident in her work with the, 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 the WMU, the Women's Missionary Union. Uh, which she helped found. Her passion for missions, particularly in the United States, drove her ministry. As the founder and first corresponding secretary of the Women's Missionary Union, Annie Armstrong was instrumental in mobilizing women for mission work. She helped raise significant funds for missions, both domestically and internationally. The annual Easter offering for North American missions, named in her honor, continues to be a major source of funding for missions. And her organizational and Advocacy work had a long-lasting impact on Baptist missions and the role of women in church activities. And I wanted to take time to mention her 
in case the ladies feel like, well, the men get all the limelight in ministry. Well, first of all, it ain't about limelight. It's about making Jesus known, right? Right. Secondly, whether you're male or female, God can use you mightily. Let the Lord direct his steps. You know what a flame does? A flame uh, carries light and heat. Amen. And as a flame, they lit the candles, and it's a beautiful illustration. You see the flickering of the flame on the monitor. I don't know what happened to our left monitor, by the way. But anyway. Uh, and it's not time to light the fourth. Next week, I'll take Somebody would take the third candle like the final advent candle. You notice how the flame carries on by you getting close enough to somebody else for them to catch your flame. That's discipleship. You can't serve God by distancing yourself from his people. They will never catch your flame. You can't expect to stay on fire for God if you don't get close to the fireplace called the church. Can I get an amen? Amen. amen. A church can't be on fire if their preacher's not on fire. Amen. You might as well just say amen. You might as well pray that God will keep the flame ablaze around here. Amen. Because I have every intention on setting every pew and everybody in it on fire around here. Amen. That's my job. I want to be a flame for Jesus, don't you? I want to inspire you to think higher and pray harder and say, God, if you can use anything, Lord, you can use me. The devil will lie to you and tell you that you're not worthy, you're not fit, you're not cut, up, cut out for it. The devil is a liar. God specializes in using the most, uh, the most unlikely candidates for his kingdom and his glory. Yes. Amen. Yes. I'm talking about flames. I'm looking at a room full of them this morning. So I ain't done much for Jesus. Well, that don't have to take long to change. You can start today. A brand new, that's exactly right. It can start right now. It don't take much to get a fire, fire started. I, I now introduce you to one named Charles Spurgeon. Y'all know who that is? Some of you do, some of you may not have ever heard of him. Well, Spurgeon's conversion happened while in a snowstorm. Spurgeon's pivotal moment came at the age of 15. When caught in a snowstorm, he took refuge in a primitive Methodist chapel in Colchester. The sermon based on Isaiah 45.22 simply stated, Look unto me, and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. And this struck him profoundly, leading to his conversion and accepting Christ as a Savior. This experience was the catalyst for his future ministry. Spurgeon preached to around 10 million people during his lifetime. His sermons were printed and widely distributed with translations in many languages. He founded the Pastor's College, training around 900 men during his lifetime for ministry, thus extending his influence to subsequent generations. His written books, works, including sermons and the classic morning and evening devotions, continue to be widely read and influential among Christians even to this very hour. In fact, some of you might have woke up and read one of his sermons or, or devotionals this morning. He said, what's your point, Brother Gary? I'm showing you a teenager, 15-year-old man that just happened into the church on a snowy day and the Holy Ghost took a hold of his heart and set him on fire. Amen. 
And I'm telling you, he wants to do that for you. I'm telling you, he can. And if you'll let him, he will. It won't look like Charles Spurgeon. It won't look like anybody else. But it'll look like what God has in mind for you. And you'll search it out. Just like the, the Bible would remember, I keep referring back to the scripture we read where, uh, let's see, I'm going to read it again. The spirit of man is the candle of the Lord, searching all the inner parts of the belly. Your walk with God is your walk with God. I don't expect you to look or act or be like Gary Carter or anybody else. But I do expect you as your pastor to find God for yourself. And ask God, what would thou have me to do? You can't do what everybody else does, but you've got something he's given you that you can employ for his service, that you can do for his glory and for his honor. Amen? Amen. All right, we've got one more I'm going to talk about, and then we're going to have an invitation. One, George Whitfield. Ah, yes. How many of y'all know who George Whitfield is? Okay, I'm fixing to tell you. While at Oxford, Whitfield experienced a deep spiritual awakening. He joined, believe it or not, something called the Holy Club, which is a group that included John and Charles Wesley, where he adopted rigorous religious practices. These were his means of salvation, but quickly found out that you're not saved by works, but by grace through faith in Jesus. And he got, had a born-again experience. Amen. And, we, and this set him on his path as a preacher. Whitfield was perhaps the best-known preacher in Britain and America in the 18th century, playing a significant role in the Great Awakening. He preached at least 18,000 times to perhaps 10 million listeners. He had cross-denominational impact. He influenced the spread of various denominations and encouraged a wave of religious fervor and involvement in both the UK and America. You need to know something about George Whitfield, that he experienced a lot of rejection. George Whitfield, a central figure in the Great Awakening, faced significant rejection from established churches as his preaching style and theological views diverged from the norms of the Anglican Church. Many churches closed their doors to him. This rejection, particularly in England, was due in part to his Methodist leanings and his open-air preaching, which was seen as unconventional and even radical at the time. It's amazing how people will get upset when you think outside of the box and do something different for Jesus. Yes. And due to these rejections, Whitfield began preaching outdoors, which became a hallmark of his ministry. This move was revolutionary as it took religious discourse out of the traditional church setting and made it accessible to a broader audience. One of the most notable instances of his field preaching occurred when Whitfield preached to a crowd estimated at around 10,000 people in a field. This event is significant for several reasons. I know I'm reading a lot, but follow with me, okay? First, it gave accessibility. By preaching outdoors, Whitfield reached people who are often excluded from or uncomfortable in traditional church settings including many laborers and the economically disadvantaged, the poor people. The sheer size of the crowd was a testament to his appeal to the growing interest in evangelical Christianity and this gospel he preached to the poor. 
This event marked a shift in evangelistic methods demonstrating the effectiveness of open-air preaching and leading to its widespread adoption by other evangelists. And so Whitfield's experiences of rejection and his subsequent success in field preaching <coughs> highlight his resilience and innovation in ministry as well as the shifting of religious landscape of the 18th century. His ability to draw such large crowds outdoors was a significant development in the history of Christian evangelism. Think about that. He was a world shaker. He said, I'm going to let God's flame burn if it, if it burns all the wood, hay, and stubble of religion out of my life or the lives of others. All, all, all he decided to do is just let the flame burn. Listen, I can't control the flame of God, nor do I want to try. You know, we got our cute little fireplaces, and you want to contain that flame in a house or it will burn the whole house down, right? But let me tell you about the flame that you need to let go wild. That's the flame of God. If it burns under God's heat, it needs to burn. If it collapses under the... Uh, the raw revelation of the truth of God's word, it needs to collapse. Can I get an amen? We don't need to try to protect what we built. If it can't stand the heat of God's word, then it needs to fall to the ground and let God be magnified. Amen. So each of these figures we mentioned this morning had unique moments of spiritual awakening, a calling which became the foundation of their influential ministries. These stories highlight how personal experience with faith can lead to profound life changes and lasting impacts on others. So I want to close with another verse that I haven't read to you this morning yet. And it's in Hebrews 1, 7. And of the angels he saith and maketh his angel spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. And I want you to think of yourself not just as a Christian, but as a minister of the gospel. Amen. You know what it takes to be a minister of the gospel? It takes one who ministers the gospel message to another. It don't have to be in a pastoral environment where you're the shepherd of a flock. A lady can quietly talk to another lady about Jesus and you are a minister of the gospel. I'm not sitting here trying to call women to be pastors this morning. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But here's what happens a lot of times. is We try to isolate and delegate certain things to certain people and it blocks us out of a whole world of blessing we could experience if we would just explore all the options God has for us to let us be a flame for Him. Don't wait on your preacher to go visit your neighbor. You go visit your neighbor. Don't wait on your preacher to go tell your neighbor they need Jesus. You go tell them they need be a flame, every single one of you that profess the name of Christ. You are a flame, but the question is, has your flame been doused? Do you need to get back up close to the fire of God's word and let it set you on fire again? Are you willing to let God use you in extraordinary ways? Are you willing to let God uh, enable you, strengthen you, teach you how to step outside of your comfort zone? To do something that will bring glory and honor to him alone. Would you sacrifice your comfort, your convenience, your reputation, your finances, whatever he said. Would you give it to him so that you could be a flame for him? The Bible says it is a reasonable thing for, uh, for us to be 
a living sacrifice. What is the sacrifices? What, what happens to sacrifices in the Old Testament? They get burned. And who is the all-consuming fire? God is. God wants His fire to consume you. So the only thing left for people to see is His glory and His light. Amen? Be a flame for God. And don't put any limits to what God might want to do with you, for you, and through you. Everybody stand your feet. Everybody bow close. I want to ask the pianist to come play maybe a, a little touch of just as I am. And I'm going to ask that if there's one or more in our midst that feel a call of God in your life. And I'm not talking about a call to, to be a missionary necessarily, although that could be a place I'm not talking about surrendering to the ministry of pastorship. I'm just talking about you know that you are meant for more than you are right now and you want to seek God to discover what that is. I want you to come and pray this morning. Would you do that? As, uh, as they play some music and we stand quietly and reverently in the presence of the Lord, let's seek the Lord for a few moments. And I'll come pray with you. Maybe you feel the call of God on your life and you're trying to figure out what it is. Nothing else brings you satisfaction. Nothing else works for you. Nothing else seems to uh, uh, be what you need it to be. Maybe this morning God said, Thou art the man. Thou art the woman. I want you. Would you come? Christians, would you pray? If you won't come up, would you surrender there in your seat? Father, in the name of Jesus, Lord, I feel like I did exactly what you wanted me to do this morning. I have no doubt about that. I've done all I can do. Lord, I brought the candle lit. And I've asked others to come, get close enough to it to let it cast them on fire. I pray now, God, for surrendered hearts. Surrender lives. I pray that young people will start seeking you for a new direction in their lives. Lord, that they be willing to say, I'm willing to go for Jesus. And Lord, we'll be careful to thank you for all that you accomplished. In Jesus' name.